1927, Mao, reporting from rural Hunan province, wrote that in a very short time in China's central, southern, and northern provinces, several hundred million peasants will rise like a mighty storm, like a hurricane, a force so swift and violent that no power, however great, will be able to hold it back. They will smash all the trammels that bind them and rush forward on the road to liberation. They will sweep away all the imperialists, warlords, corrupt officials, local tyrants, and evil gentry into their graves. 20 years later, ensconced in Beijing, he was able to realize that vision to disastrous effect. To discuss the history and legacy of Chinese land reform in the 40s and 50s, we have on Brian DeMare, professor at Tulane and the author of the recent Land Wars, The Story of China's Agrarian Revolution. The way you structured this book, instead of doing it straight chronologically, you had each chapter conforming to a different section of what Mao put forward as the idealized stages of land reform. And this narrative, which he first scripted out in 1927, ended up setting the structure for what ended up happening in the 40s and 50s. So first off, what do you think drew Mao so much to narrative? And why did this narrative end up becoming such an important part in the way things played out at the most local levels? The fascination with narrative was not unique to Mao Zedong. Part of the reasoning behind this book and my long-term fascination myself with narrative is the belief that stories are central to humanity. People have been telling stories since prehistory. Right at the moment, I happen to be teaching my ancient China class, and you see these ancient bronze vessels with the Taotie motifs and these mysterious beasts. Mm. And we know that there's a tremendous story associated with these monsters, although we just don't know exactly what it is. When you move forward in the historical record, change from one era to another has always been understood through the narrative device of the dynastic cycle, from the dynamic founders such as Zhu Yuanzhang to corrupt decline under self-interested eunuchs. So I would say that narrative is deeply embedded in Chinese society, particularly when it comes to political change. But as to your question about Mao Zedong himself, I, I do have a few thoughts, but I, I think grad students should really pay attention to this question because there's a lot of unexplored material here in terms of Mao and narrative and Mao as the, the grand storyteller of modern China. He sure. himself was an absolutely voracious reader who was very familiar with all the novels of Chinese tradition. So he was someone who was deeply ensconced in the world of narrative. And I also think he needed narrative to accomplish his primary goal in the 1920s when he writes the, the Hunan Report, which has that wonderful passage that you just quoted. And he needs to argue for peasants and the peasantry as a revolutionary force. And at the time, there was a very strong view of peasants, and it was not a good one. At the very best, they were self-interested petty capitalists, who just wanted to own their own land and make money. At worst, they were superstitious, backward, uncultured. And Mao doesn't so much as challenge this view as to argue that peasants can change. And to make that argument, he needs narrative to, to argue for that transformation. So I, I think that would be my answer for your question. But I think the broader question of Mao and his relationship to narrative over the course of his life is really deserving of more attention. Sure. So Mao, of course, ends up convincing the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party that it was actually the rural folks and not the, the city bourgeois where the revolution would come from. And his first major domestic initiative is to push land reform. So I guess the question, the first question that your book raises was whether or not China needed land reform in the first place in 1949. The simple answer to that is, is yes. It, China did need land reform. It needed some sort of interventionist campaign into the countryside. There was in the 1930s and 40s a, a widespread understanding that things were not right in rural China. There was massive poverty, real suffering. Many farming households just did not have enough land. Landlordism, while never as universal as the party claimed, and in fact, there were some landlords who had huge land holdings. I think any government that cared for the welfare of the Chinese farmers, they had to do something. And on a related note, all of those landlords who lived off rent, from a farming perspective, they were living the dream. And in my book, and when I talk about these things, I, I really like to 
draw attention to Xiao Zhaohou and her work on rural Shan. I think that she really captures the dynamic between poor peasants and landlords in that for poor peasants, the idea of not farming and living off rent was their ultimate goal. But for the state, from the state perspective, these idle landlords who live off land rents and don't labor themselves, they are in essence wasted labor. So the other side of this, in terms of the need for land reform, from the state's perspective, they needed to, to get those landlords productive. They needed to get them working in the fields or, or, or doing something. So that was the other side of it. So I think that despite all the things that go wrong in land reform, the initial idea of let's go to the countryside, restructure land holdings, get everyone involved in agriculture, or at least more people involved in agriculture was in, in essence a, a good idea at the very start. What were the main differences that are most important to understand when trying to conceptualize this from folks who grew up in the West? So I think that if we want to think about what landholding patterns looked like in China, uh, and this goes back to Xiao Jia Ho's work, there was true mobility up and down the, the social ladder in rural China. So in other parts of the world, they practiced primogeniture where all the land went to the oldest son and you could maintain a large estate from one generation to the next. In China, one of the kind of the, the, the side effects of the unique family structure in China was that there was partable inheritance so that all village or so all, all the men of a family would divide that farmland equally. So as a result, you might have a wealthy family with six sons and each of those six sons is going to inherit a much smaller plot of land. So there is this sense that, yes, then, then this is the what you see when you look at what villagers were saying about wealthy villagers was that, yes, this person is wealthy, but look at how many sons he has. That wealth is not going to last multiple generations. And in sure. contrast, the, the Communist Party, when they talk about landlord wealth, they explicitly say it does last from one generation to the next and that it was impossible to move up the social ladder. But the experiences of Chinese villagers does not bear that out. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the one thing that strikes out to me comparing Europe and China across dynasties is that nobility doesn't last forever. The emperor, if you were really kicking ass, like maybe he would grant you three generations of your kids being able to join the civil service or what have you. But it's not like land holding doesn't come with this sense that you are in a different social class and are better than everyone else in a way that uh, the sort of lines were divided much more brightly in the West. I want to say a bit more about this question of whether or not land reform was needed. The, the, the real question is, was violent struggle needed? Was this type of land reform needed? And I think there, that's where the question becomes a little bit more difficult. It's important to note that there was often the need for some sort of co coercion or first force. Village power holders were not simply inclined to hand over their land or accept their poorer neighbors as the new local elite. And in some villages, there were some truly bad people who had abused their power. So to give some examples, I discovered abuses that were not really discoveries at all because they're exactly what you might expect from a village with no real estate presence. So local power holders acted without restraint. They collected too much taxes and made a profit. They blackmailed families with threats of conscripting their sons into the Nationalist Army and slept with married women. So especially for these men, land reform meant facing justice for past misdeeds, both criminal and moral, they really do have a reason to push back against change. So coercion or force in these cases, I would say, was needed. And I, I think this is important to note that the arrival of state and party power was, in essence, the arrival of this sort of coercive power. Now, what happened in land reform, as readers of the book know, went far beyond the arrival of state power. And so the problem here, I think, is twofold. The first issue was that the party followed Mao's Hunan report and essentialized the ideal of feudal resistance 
So every village was assumed to be a hotbed of feudal reaction that needed to be defeated by heroic work teams and peasant activists. The second was the method to deal with those supposed reactionaries. And that, of course, is struggle. And I know we're going to get to struggle, but for the moment, I just want to emphasize that many observers and participants in land reform openly doubted the need for struggle. And I, I like to use two quotations to highlight the dynamic at work here. The first comes from a party report from Hunan in 1951, where a peasant is quoted as saying, if the point is just to give more land to the poor, why doesn't Chairman Mao just print out some banknotes, buy the land from the landlords, and then give us our share? And the answer is found in Dingling's novel about land reform. When two cadres are plotting what they need to do in the, the village they're in, one of them says, we, we have to have struggle. And the other says, yes, without struggle, there is no land reform. So to rephrase the question, was this model of land reform based on universalized violent struggle? I would say, no, it was not. It led to far too many deaths to say nothing with all the torture and, and other things that I'm sure we'll talk about. So let's go to the beginning of where Mao and your book start the narrative, which is on arriving. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm on the local as well as in elite circles. And you had this movement of uh, work teams from Tsinghua and Beida and everywhere else signing up to go to rural areas and conduct land reform. So could you talk about where this this motivation came from and how these elites thought of what role they should play when they uh, signed up to go to these villages? So this is a, another really interesting question, and I think it probably ties into the May 4th movement and the radicalization of Chinese youth. This question makes me think of Peng Pai, who is a, a student from the countryside in Guangdong, he goes to Japan, becomes a Marxist, and comes back. And he was from a landlord family, and he gives away all of his family's land. And for youth such as Peng Pai, I think there was a real concern for rural citizens and a belief that he had a moral obligation to empower them. And it was almost his duty to give away his own wealth to do. And I also think that Peng Pai is already thinking in national terms, that uplifting farmers is a necessary part of the larger project of making China strong vis-a-vis -vis various imperialist powers. As for the broader movement among students and intellectuals to join land reform work teams, it's dangerous, of course, to generalize all of these tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. But I, I do think that they were motivated by moral concerns, want to do the right thing for farmers and making China strong. But they're as we see in the book, they're not just uplifting farmers, they're also overseeing violent struggle of class enemies. And here, I think that Maoist narrative of defeating the evil forces of feudalism is very important. So in Land Wars, I have an account that is written by a poet who joined a work team. And he talks about his journey as this great adventure into the unknown. And I think for Chinese youth, this was very appealing. I think that actually Western readers of William Hinton's Fan Shen and I include myself a few decades ago, I'm a, a young <laughs> radical and I, I read this book and you have this shared sense of adventure. And beyond that, for the, the Chinese intellectuals who did take part in land reform, they were actively siding with the peasants. They were making their class stance clear. And this was a really great way to show your loyalty to the new regime. Totally. Especially for those with questionable backgrounds themselves. Yes. This is the ultimate way to prove that you're on the right side of history, so to speak. America hasn't had a real revolutionary movement in a really long time. But the closest thing that came to mind as an analogy were the Freedom Rides. In the, in the early 60s, a handful of activists, mostly from the North, took buses down in the face of threats of an actual violence to help register black voters in the South in the face of Jim Crow. Do you see any, are there parallels worth discussing or do you think this is too far-fetched, Brian? I think this is actually a very good question. And when I think about it, I think in more contemporary terms, and I'm not the first person to do this. So when I look around and I see increased activism around Black Lives Matter and real tension between younger and older generations, 
I definitely see parallels. And very interestingly, there's a historian named Di Wang who wrote a, a really thought-provoking book called Violence on the Chengdu Plain that talked about these intellectuals in the 20s and 30s who would go to the countryside to carry out field work of a different kind. They were writing their MA theses. And he compares one of them, who's actually a central character in his book, to a modern social justice warrior. And he actually uses that exact phrase. And I think that since he wrote the book, the phrase social justice warrior has become too loaded to really use uh, to compare to someone in China nearly 100 years ago. But I, I do think that there are parallels in the political activism that you see among youth. And I just look at my own nephews and nieces. They're incredibly politically active and they're really not afraid to call out their parents and to disassociate themselves from their parents. So I I think that there there are some parallels and perhaps another way to think about it. It's a way to draw connections with these earlier Chinese radicals who we might have difficulty relating to if we can just understand just this universal tendency among youth to radicalize and to be willing to call out their own family members if needed. Because I think sometimes when we think of China, we go, oh my God, we can't believe that these people would turn on their parents in, in this way. But I think in modern political context, we do see some of these lines being drawn between generations and even inside of families. Yeah, this has certainly been happening in my household. Um, yes, yes. Though I, I will I will say, Brian, that there is this right wing uh, uh, meme right now comparing Black Lives Matter to the Cultural Revolution. And I think it's worth spending 90 seconds just to make very clear that it's in thinking about, OK, young people getting excited and passionate about politics, maybe, but the land reform and the Cultural Revolution – became extraordinarily violent and destructive uh, within uh, weeks of them getting kicked off. And the the comparative restraint and willingness to work through the system and organize to vote and what have you, what does like three Macy's being looted over the course of the entirety of what we've seen over the U.S. in the past six months compare to hundreds of thousands being brutally killed in public? It boggles the mind that people would go there, but I guess that's just politics in in, in the U.S. and in the 21st century. So we have these folks from the city signing up to do revolution in the countryside. And even today in China, there's a rural urban divide, but it was only more stark in the, in the forties where, where the comparative level of development in rural areas was even lower than it is today. So what were the, what were some of the tensions that these work teams had to overcome when they started settling down in these places where oftentimes they couldn't even speak the, the local dialect? That was often the the first trouble is just communicating. And that process is just mind boggling of how you would go in and and create great change when you can barely understand what the locals are saying. But the the main problem they had is just identifying local realities. So they have to figure out who is the poorest people in the village, who are the quote unquote exploiters, what grudges are at play and also avoid getting tricked. There's a multitude of reasons why locals would want to trick a a land reform team. It could be that they just didn't want any outsiders and wanted them to go away as quickly as possible. But often there were personal grudges that people wanted to get revenge on their neighbors. And it had nothing to do with feudal exploitation. It was just personal grudges. And this was a convenient way to get the tables turned on their local enemies. Yeah, I like the line you had some there. I forget what what place it was in China. But you said that locals angry that work team members so like didn't believe in animal spirits, tried to expel them because they thought that the work team was screwing up the, the crop that year. Yeah. And I guess one thing I just want to emphasize is that for if you lived in a village, you didn't want anyone coming to your village. There was no good... I mean, I guess the only exception would be if a drama troupe came to your village and put on a show. Usually an outsider meant trouble. It meant taxes. It meant one of the local sons getting conscripted. Yeah, there's been war for the past 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. It's not a it's not a happy thing when the Japanese or the KMT or whoever rolls in. Just because the 
just because the communists are promising land reform, you still have a whole bunch of, you'd still be justifiably suspicious about what may end up happening in, as a result. What was the relationship between, aside from the folks arriving, there were already local cadres in many of these places. What was their role and stature in these villages? And how did these teams interact with and sometimes have to supersede what they were trying to do with the local societies? So local cadres were incredibly important during the land reform process. They are the ones who actually knew the local society. So there's a tension here when the work team arrives. On one hand, they are inclined to rely on local cadres and to listen to what they have to say. But on the other hand, there's always this knowledge that maybe the local cadres are in cahoots with local landlords. Again, according to the land reform narrative, there is always going to be a feudal reactionary plot against the work team that often involves certain local cadres who will be corrupted. And this is, of course, all according to the narrative, landlords and landlord families and landlord women specifically. So the work team, in a sense, never knows whether it can trust the local cadres and local cadres, for their part, are, I guess there's a whole range of them, but many of them were self-interested and rose to lead leadership positions because there were material benefits to being a, a leader. For example, you often got the best land when land was redistributed. So you often end up with a situation where the local cadres are corrupt, but they're not necessarily corrupted by landlords. They're corrupted by their own political power. Yeah, it gets pretty awkward when the peasants uh, start telling the work teams, like, actually, we're not pissed off at the landlords. We're pissed off at the cadres because they're, they've been the ones who've been getting the, the best of what our valley has to offer. And this is something that transcends land reform throughout the revolutionary oh, totally. era. This is a huge problem with local cadres. And you have multiple campaigns aimed at dealing with corrupt local cadres and to th think that it wouldn't be a problem in land reform is completely ridiculous, especially when you consider that the, the way that a lot of these local cadres originally come to power is through violent struggle or being tough guys. So they're yeah. exactly the type of people that you would expect to abuse their power. Yeah, of course, this is a an issue with any uh, one party state, which is still with China today. Mm -hmm. Organizing. How did this process unfold in the villages? I think that this chapter really shows the, the power of organization, of doing things in a systematic and planned fashion. The, the fact is that the party had a very viable working strategy. It started with finding the poorest villagers, practicing what we, what we call santong, or the three togethers, living, working, and eating together with these villages, villagers, really getting to know them, understanding the, the hardships. And this is the easier part because there's really no shortage of hardships in your average Chinese village. The tricky part is to get your your kind of your targets, your poor peasants, to see their bitterness is what you know it was called coup as being the result of someone that could be blamed, an exploiter. And so it's not just that this peasant has had bad luck or it's been fate; it's somebody's fault. And so if a villager, for example, is paying rent, it's very easy to see how someone else is benefiting from your labor. So you, you, you get your poor peasant to understand that they are living a very bitter life and you get them to what we call speak bitterness, to talk about their bitterness, and then to get that bitterness or anger focused on someone in the village. And then you bring together various poor activists, what we call a speaking bitterness meeting. They compare suffering and they practice articulating their anger and articulating the various crimes that have been committing, committed against them. It's just very appealing, just being able to blame. On the one hand, there's, there's, there's a challenge in convincing people who like their landlords, who think they've treated them well, that that they're they're bad people. But at the end of the day, everyone wants their life to be better. And if you narratives of resentment are really powerful in lots of contexts. And when you have people, when I read it, it gave me this idea of planting memories, like uh, the sentence like Niyomeoku, 
just think about, just think harder. This person must have been bad to you because he's from the wrong class or whatever. It gave me this image of like policemen getting folks to make false confessions. And of course, we talked about there were certainly bad landlords. But when you take this very attractive narrative to make your life make sense and make your struggle make sense, and certainly these peasants had really hard lives, it, it, there's something extraordinarily seductive about what the work teams were trying to push. I think this sentence that you highlighted, if you live in the village, yo, is the only answer for that. Yes, I do, in fact, totally. have bitterness. And it, it's, it becomes, I think, in a sense, a, a kind of a mode of discourse throughout the entire Maoist era, this idea of spilling your, your guts to a work team. So it's not just in land reform. And later, every time they send a work team to your village, they're, they're going because they want you to talk. And so to me, it seems that villagers really got used to this idea of just spilling their guts. So when I was doing research in the early 2000s, I had my little research team of fellow graduate students, and we did not see ourselves as a communist work team. But that's how the villagers treated us, because we would go into their wow. houses and just immediately they would just start talking about all the difficulty they have. And they were not complaining about the forces of feudalism, as we might guess. They were complaining about local cadres and about all the, the, the party's policies. But it was this weird moment where we really did feel like we were practicing the three togethers and, and getting these villagers just to, to tell us everything. But they were really ready to speak of their bitterness. To go back to this sentence of Niyomeyoku, it was they had a lot of bitterness. Since you since you brought it up, maybe now's a good time to talk a little bit about the research process. Certainly villagers are are happy to chat with this weird white guy, or some villagers would be more than happy to chat with this weird white guy about what's going wrong in their lives. But local archivists may not be super excited about you digging around the you know, deepest, darkest secrets that these localities have, have in the stacks. So what was the actual research process like in these archives? There wasn't a lot of research that happened inside of an archive for this book. My, my takeaway from conducting research from this book was that it took me nearly two decades to do. It was a long process. I lived in China for about five years straight. And during that time, I was working on land reform. And I had some success in archives collecting materials for what became my first book, Mao's Cultural Army, which is about drama troops. And the reason I ended up writing that book was that I could get archival documents. So even as I was well, actually quite successful in getting materials for that book, the archivists that I dealt with were all very clear that there would be no documents on land reform forthcoming. The opera stuff, the drama stuff, I could sell that as a cultural product or cultural project, and it worked quite well. So for land reform, it's too sensitive. And my Chinese colleagues who work at Chinese universities would say to me, look, Brian, I, I can't get those documents. How are you going to get them? And that was one of the reasons for a while I just despaired about ever being able to write this book. Uh, a few things happened. One is that I found some really excellent published collections. And these were, there are two in particular. One was published by a Chinese university and it was marked like for internal distribution only. Of course, those things eventually all end up online on the on the market because China is a capitalist place these days. So I was able to purchase one collection, and that was a collection of party documents that had some really good stuff. And there was also another published collection that was actually published in New Zealand in a fly-by-night publishing house, where basically some Chinese academics had collected a whole bunch of archival materials. They organized them and had it published outside of China. And, and that was it for that publisher. Uh, but the collection is absolutely um, amazing. I was able to get some local county documents, but those were all obtained uh, in informal matters. The idea of going to an archive to get this stuff is, is just a non-starter. As much as the Communist Party wants to control the archives, it can't control all of these documents in a large part because Chinese academics won't let them. Chinese academics are very much secure in their faith in the power of documents and the importance of getting them out there and sharing them. 
because of that, I think that enough of the documents saw the day of light. I was able to track them down. That said, there is so much more that is out there. So let's talk about dividing the process of deciding who was in what class in all of these villages. Okay. So the idea of Maoist classes, the way that they were formulated was alien to the countryside. And what I really try to emphasize, there were very real social divisions in Chinese villages. That's just the fact of life. The the idea that there were no classes in China or no classes in the village is just completely ridiculous. There were, of course, different social groupings. Some people were better off and some people were not so well off. But the idea that there were set classes that were static and people were stuck in them and that they were, by their definition, stuck in these various strata because of exploitation that just ensured you were only in one class from one generation to the next was completely imported. And and this is something that I've run into a lot of trouble with because when I talk about the creation of the landlord class in the Chinese village, what I'm talking about is first and foremost, the creation of this discursive category of deep of landlord, which was a, a new term. So what did Xi's dad think of all this? Xi Jinping's dad, Xi Zhongshun. And, and here, I just want to start by noting that I'm, I'm not an expert on Xi Zhongshun. I know him through the documents. I know him through the sources. I know him through the letters that he wrote to other party leaders, including Mao Zedong, about, about land reform. And what I would say is that from these sources, he always seemed to me to be very thoughtful and someone who was con- concerned with understanding the actual conditions in the countryside. And what he saw was, to me, a very accurate depiction of the the countryside in terms of its class composition. Mao, when he talked about poor peasants, he really romanticized them as being moral, brave, upright, not afraid to fight, but also poor because they were exploited. And what Xi Zhongshun saw was that, yes, there there are poor peasants who are poor because of, of bad luck, because their family was poor, there was too many sons, they didn't have enough land, and that was no fault of their own. But he also saw that there were poor peasants uh, who were poor for a reason. They didn't like to work. They loved to eat. They liked to drink and gamble. And that was why they were poor. And so Xi Zhongshun very rightfully said, you cannot put the fate of the revolution in their hands. Yeah, just this idea of seeing in greys was something that Mao never did. And when you want to electrify a movement, greys don't necessarily help. But when um, you're trying to govern and increase land yields and what have you, it's the sort of subtlety which Mr. C Senior brings to this discussion was really striking throughout this book. He also had this phrase of Zhizao Doujong, which is this trend that he sound he saw was particularly worrying of of course there being places in in rural China where there really weren't landlords or the landlords were so small as to not really be worthy of the venom which uh Mao's narrative would put on them. But at the same time If you had a work team, you had to find landlords because if you didn't have landlords, you had no one to struggle against and then you couldn't do land reform. You you cite a few horrifying cases of a poor orphan girl basically being being, like everyone decides like this is going to be our local landlord because otherwise, like, what are we doing here? And that sort of trend of of understand it's not just the poor peasants which of which there are gradations there's also landlords that should be treated differently based on their behavior and the and their holdings and what have you which which she senior saw but but mao but mao certainly didn't so struggle what was it and what were the dynamics that led struggle down into something so dark and violent Struggle was the fulcrum of the land reform narrative. When Mao imagined the transformation of peasants from these apolitical, backward, superstitious beings into revolutionary actors, struggle was that moment. And struggle was when you confronted your oppressor, when you stood up to your landlord and you 
got in his face and you yelled at him and you accused him of the specific crimes that you've been practicing, the articulation of them in these uh, speaking bitterness meetings. And often this kind of standing up to your class enemy was accompanied by, so making them kneel, putting on a dunce cap, having a woman who was undergoing menstruation step over him, which was seen as this great embarrassment. But even uh, far more extreme, of course, were all the, the moments of violence and spitting on them, beating them, hitting them, and it eventually, of course, torturing and executing landlords. So how much of this can we lay at Mao and the CCP's feet, the actual violence that, that comes out of this, as opposed to it being the sort of dynamic that once you unleash, you can't really control? Well, Mao and the Communist Party are to blame for struggle as a concept, I would say. It's really hardwired into the narrative that they're pushing during revolution. But at the same time, I also want to note that villagers looking for wealth really pushed struggle to some of its worst excesses because there was this belief that there was all this wealth that landlords were hoarding and violence was seen as the best way to get landlords to produce that wealth. And well, and of course that belief didn't come from nowhere. Yes. Right? It was from the top down because they would, there was just, this is the idea is that because landlords are evil, immoral people, who have been landlords for generation upon generation, they must have all of this hidden wealth. And for local officials, whether they be local cadres or work team members, there's always this understanding that it's better to be too violent and to give the masses too much of a free hand as opposing to controlling the masses and trying to limit violence and run the risk of what we call peaceful land reform. So there's almost like a, like a, a long-term tendency, I think, for local officials to take orders to their extremes. I suspect because the party is always suspicious that local officials will not follow orders. So if you are working at the local level and you are nervous about your career and advancement, it's always better to go too far. So I just recently read a, a report about the destruction of houses in the countryside around Beijing, where the, the party had ordered local officials to deal with all of these houses that were popping up. And local officials really went to extremes and de demolished entire villages. So I think this idea of the party giving an order and then local officials carrying it to really radical extremes seems to be hardwired into the relationship between local and central officials. That's interesting. One of the things that I found most chilling was how much this was like a taolu, like a just like a series of steps mm -hmm. that would play out. And everyone knew what the ending was. And the landlords knew it too. Thousands and thousands of people committing suicide because they see what's coming and don't want to have to go through what struggle will lead for what struggle will bring them and their families. It's just it, 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 it's just the, the the staging, the way in which it's a play, as you said, people are coached into their roles and there's an order in which the local work teams know is like the best to get people the most riled up so that the struggle really gives you the fireworks that you were aiming for in the first place, because this is really, th this is like the, the summation of all the work that you came to the villages and all the time you spent doing the things that like make sense, like hanging out with the villagers and understanding what their issues are, but channeling all that anger in a very directed from the top way into this, this struggle process really, really put a chill down my spine. Deng Xiaoping does not come off well in your book, to say the least. I, I want to read a passage that Deng wrote describing his experience of the impact that violence had on the villages that he was in charge of. He writes that the masses would hate a few landlords and want them killed. So according to the wishage of the masses, we would have these landlord killed. Afterwards, the masses would fear reprisals from those who had ties to who we had just killed and would draw up an even bigger list of names, saying that if these people were also killed, everything would be okay. So once again, according to the wishes of the masses, we would have these people killed. And after we killed these people, the masses felt they were fearing of even more people who wanted revenge for these deaths. So they would draw up an even bigger list of names. And once again, we would kill these people. We kept on killing and the masses kept feeling more and more insecure. The masses were frightened, scared, and took flight. 
The result was that over 200 people were killed and work in 12 administrative villages was ruined. I remember discovering this quote in the documents and just really being shocked. I think it really highlights who Deng Xiaoping was. I think that all too often, we, we being historians, hold him up as the opposite of Mao Zedong. So, you know, Mao just wants class struggle. Deng wants economic development. He's the ec- pragmatic reformer, not the romantic revolutionary. But I think this shows that Deng is good at banging heads and he was not afraid of violence. And so I think that when you read this quote, you can see a connection between what happened in land reform and, and, and what happened in Tiananmen Square. It's not a concern about violence. Yeah, I think it's particularly striking because in Tiananmen, of course, but also even back in the 50s, there were other senior CCP leaders who saw much more of a problem with this. The passage is creepy in that it's not worried about the people getting killed. It's more like, oh, man, the land reform didn't work out because it's got a little out of hand. Like, that's a bummer. But it is. Where am I going with this? I think you're right, Brian. And it's striking that when you uh, see these debates on uh, Tiananmen and in land reform, as well as others where uh, Deng played a role in the violence, that it wasn't everyone who was on board with this sort of thing. He says, like, land reform is not a long, is not a time for sisa wen wen to behavior. We don't need to be cultured with this. A little excess is okay. He clearly comes out as uh, a leader who's much more comfortable with the deaths of his own citizenry, which is something that, as you said, is often forgotten with the sort of like hagiographic spin that Deng often gets in coverage, like obviously domestically, but also around the world. So what are the debates around the death tolls from land reform? It's a good question, but not one that I have ever been comfortable answering with a definitive with a definitive answer. And it, it goes back to just the closed nature of the discussion about land reform in China that makes it very difficult. And there are some numbers that have been produced by historians working in the PRC, which are just huge. So there's no doubt that there was a massive number of people who were killed. The question really is how many millions of people died. I've always been very comfortable, and I hate using that word in this context, but comfortable with the figure of one million, with the kind of assumption there's about a million villages in China and in any given village, one person was probably killed. But other historians have gone up to three million, and I have no way to refute that. And to be honest with your listeners, I don't really have an interest in knowing if it was 1 million, 2 million, or 3 million. To me, 1 million is enough. That's enough to, sure. that's enough to justify whatever you want to say about land reform. Yeah. And it's, this is a forgotten catastrophe compared to the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, but a million deaths is nothing to sneeze at. So the goal of all of this was a uh, fan shen. So turning over your body, a, a turning over your body in English, but is much more poetic in Chinese. So what is it and did it end up happening thanks to all of the suffering? As you said, fan was the ultimate goal of land reform. Without fan, land reform was not complete. And fan shen, it's a socialist-led awakening where under the tutelage of the Communist Party and by receiving their ideological training, and most importantly, by taking part in violent struggle against your class enemies, you have this enlightenment, this awakening, and you realize your power as a member of the peasant masses, and you assume political leadership over your village. And a very big part of it was you got wealth, you got property from what we call the struggle object, the, the, the class enemy that you struggled. And that gives you what we call economic fanshen, which is that basis for your life where you now have a, you can live comfortably. But that was to be accompanied by political and cultural fanshen, where you understood your power as the masses, as I said, and also cultural that you wanted to learn how to read and you would you know stop beating your wife, things like that. And I just would add, it's very interesting to me, obviously, in the West, a lot of people know this term, Fan Shen. It's what William Hinton called his book about land reform. 
And that he called his book Fanshen, I think, is not an accident. It's this moment of peasant liberation that is incredibly appealing to an outside observer, such as William Hinton or myself as a young radical who was reading his book. It was that idea of peasants being liberated and standing up and joining this kind of global movement of workers and, and peasants that really was quite meaningful. And Hinton, he's so good at explaining what Fanshen is that one of the most important books about land reform in China, in Chinese, quotes William Hinton to explain what Fanshen is, which is, to me, quite amazing. It's interesting. There's a tradition of the CCP using Western writers, Western radical writers, both for buttressing their international image as well as using it as domestic propaganda. Of course, Edgar, Smith, Edgar Snow's book helped recruit helped recruit many uh, Chinese to show, to, to go meet Mao in the hills. So seeing that the story is, as we've talked about, is incredibly alluring. And as there is uh, violence in that Hinton reports on, but it is not the big takeaway that you get from his work. Yeah, correct. And I think I'm not unique in being drawn to the study of China by Fan Shen. There's a lot of people out there who read that book and then decided that this is what they are passionate about. The same thing with Edgar Snow and Red Star Over China. And I often wonder what the current generation of China scholars who are coming up, if they similarly had that kind of experience with a book. I got to say, though, you know, Martin Jaquies, like when China rules the world, the, the literary chops <laughs> have sort of fallen off a cliff when it comes to idealizing the uh, the CCP. They, they have. Um, they have. They, they, they really got to find a, another a, someone, someone else to tell the narrative because it's uh, it's struggling. It really makes sense, though, that young literary talents like Orwell in Spain or John Reed in Russia and Mexico are drawn to what on their face seem like great revolutionary movements. And part of what made their books incredible was the openness and access to political leadership and how personally compelling those leaders were from Mao and Red Star over China to Lenin and Sancho Panza in John Reed's work. And even nowadays, the likes for the likes of Peter Hessler, China was a real adventure in the 80s and 90s. And certainly you can seek that out nowadays in China. But the, the path of being this like itinerant Western journalist uh, setting aside visa issues is just not one that China really embraces anymore. Because at the end of the day, China and the CCP are status quo powers, and no one's going to be able to embed with a Xi Jinping in uh, Zhongnanhai and get the degree of access that an Edgar Snow was able to in Yan'an or uh, Robert Hinton was in, uh, in, in a rural district in Fanshan. Brian, did women Fanshan? It's complicated. Women did gain from land reform. They often gained a political role in their village. But ultimately, the land reform campaign was not particularly interested in women per se. They were interested in using women to accomplish the larger goals of the, the campaign, so to speak. So for example, one of the things that work teams discovered was very effective when you're struggling a landlord is for a woman to come up, tell a sob story and cry. So women who could cry easily or on demand found themselves very much in demand for getting up and giving these impassioned speeches and then breaking into tears and then encouraging other people in the audience to also cry. So you have all these instances and you can find them of women becoming political activists, of women who become labor heroes after receiving land. But overall, the focus on work teams was on class, not on gender. And you have instances where a work team will meet with a bunch of women and say, okay, let's talk about your bitterness. And the women will say, okay, yes, we would like to talk about our husbands and how much they abuse us and beat us and how they're so horrible. And they are instructed not to focus on their husbands, that they need to focus on class, not on these other issues. So overall, the liberation of women most certainly had to wait. 
Yeah, I, I love this quote from uh, a report that was angry at these women because they do not see class oppression, only their in-laws and husbands. Mm -hmm. and, I um, and I think if you had seen how their in-laws and husbands treated them, you would have sided with the women, right? Oh, totally. It, it comes back to narrative, right? There's one series of steps and there's one model for what is wrong with a village and what the solution is to fix it. And gender sort of comes into play a little bit. You write like, uh, at least like widows and uh, divorcees, I guess divorce is a new thing too, which is exciting. But those are the folks who get to own land. But at the end of the day, you're still struck you're still stuck with this very um, patriarchal society. As you write, the land reform buttress the family order, which ends up giving these men more power over their, their sisters and wives and daughters, which ends up not necessarily for the better. Talk a little bit about sexual violence, which also had a disturbingly large role to play in land reform. The problem of sexual assault in land reform is a classic example of the silences in the archives or broadly, uh, silence in the documents, because it's not discussed. There are a lot of problems that get a lot of attention in party reports in terms of land reform. So in the documents, there's a lot of attention about the problems of local cadres and, for example, whether or not they're hoarding the fruits of struggle. But as towards sexual assault, it's just not mentioned at all. And I am very upfront about this is that I didn't see the problem because it wasn't in the documents. And this was a great example of myself as a historian, just being lulled into complacency by my belief that my documents were being honest with me. But if you look at it a bit deeper, you see very big problems in terms of sexual assault. And here I do want to talk a little bit about Hinton and Fan Shen because when you go back and you read Fan Shen closely, it's very clear that sexual assault is a problem. But there's two things that happen in that book. It is, one is that Hinton is a, just a, a great writer. And so sometimes his, his, you get distracted by just the, the, the beautiful story that he's telling. The other and related is that he uses his narrative prowess to sympathize with the sexual assaulters, right? the, 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 the peasant men who are committing these crimes. And he invites you- Against, against mostly landlord wives. Against mostly landlord wives. And, and so there's a couple of things going on. One is that he's using his narrative techniques. The other is he's adopting the communist perspective that this is a class issue, not necessarily a gender issue. So he talks about these poor peasant male activists who assault landlord women. And the, the predators explain it away as saying, hey, they're landlord women. And for so long, those landlords were taking advantage of our women. So now we're taking advantage of their, basically their stuff because women are viewed as property, essentially as property during this period. The, it's not seen as a real problem for the Communist Party because it's this extension of the assault on the landlord class. And because it's not seen as a problem, it's not put into the documents and it just disappeared from our understanding of land reform. And I'm again, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I didn't really see this until I was well into the process of writing my book. And so it's in the book. I talk about it. But at the same time, I, I know that this is something that requires further research. It's going to be very difficult for whoever undertakes this, this project. It's going to be a very difficult in both sense of the words, both in trying to access sources and figuring out what happened and also the, the process of studying it. For me, studying land reform in, and writing this book, is a lot of times it wasn't something that I wanted to do or that I've got joy out of, but it was something that I felt I had to do. It's like an obligation that I felt after studying it for so long and recognizing the need in my field for a book on land reform. So I do not envy the future researchers who pick this up, but to them, I'm going to say now, this is incredibly important and it's something that's completely been overlooked and really deserves close and careful attention. So aside from increasing social consciousness, 
the idea of land reform was also to increase output. What was the what were the takeaways when it came to economic development for this land reform push? Because economic development was always a secondary goal of land reform, the results were decidedly mixed. So in some places, peasants got land, they really threw themselves into production and agricultural output increased. In other places, there was a concern about producing. People were afraid that if they got wealthy, they produced too much, it'd be taken away from them. So there was a, a, a lot of farmers in various parts of China who tried to play it safe by just producing what they needed and, and, and not really throwing themselves into agricultural production. And the party really always knew that land reform was not going to solve the economic problems of the Chinese masses. That was going to have to await different campaigns and, and, and really collectivization is what they had in mind. But from an economic perspective, there were certainly gains. So I really want to emphasize when I talk about land reform that there were a lot of peasants who were much better off after land reform. They got land, they got farming tools, they had access to, to, to buffaloes and all the things that you need to be a productive farmer. But a lot of other people really didn't see much change. And overall, and this is something that historians in the PRC now freely admit, was that the overall impact economic impact of land reform was limited. You got land, but you now pay taxes on it. Yeah. And of course, within a handful of years, you have communes and then you have the Great Leap Forward and all the all the suffering that came out of that. Yeah. And I think this is one of the reasons why actually land reform is a little bit understudied is because of certain big economic changes that happened were so quickly washed aside in the rush to collectivize. But the point I make in my book is that is not the real point of land reform. The real point of land reform, it's political, it's the imposition of class labels. And this is, is really what we need to pay attention to when we talk about land reform. Brian, you want to close by talking about the legacy? Yes. And this is still very much an open question. The debate is going on. And the problem ultimately is that in China, land reform is still seen as this hallowed moment, this great accomplishment of the Chinese Communist Party. So to question it is very difficult. And to question it openly is especially difficult. When I wrote this book, I, I did have a bit of a naive hope that it would inspire that kind of discussion, especially with the very prominent role that Xi Jinping's father played. But after the book came out, I very quickly realized that that was not the case. When commentators in China talked about my book, really all that they wanted to talk about was Xi Zhongshun and Xi Jinping. And of course, they had a lot of difficulty doing so because they did not dare write those names online. So there was a lot of linguistic gymnastics that people did. And eventually, actually, my book was... So the book is not published in Chinese and perhaps never will be, but it had been openly discussed on Doban, which is a Chinese website that does a lot of different things now, but at its heart was originally a, a forum for discussing uh, books and other media. And the there was a webpage on that website that was open and you had, I think the, at the end, I think there are at least eight different reviews of the book. And it's now gone. It's, oh. Yeah. It, I was just searching it right now. I was really hoping we could close on that quote from one of the Chinese reviews. Yeah. I, uh, sadly, I, I didn't think to save it before oh, it disappeared, bummer. but it's gone. And I think that's indicative of the, how the book is being treated in China, that it's seen as being negative towards land reform. And of course, there are a lot of negative things about land reform, but I also make pains to note that there were a lot of good people with good ideas involved in land reform and that we need to be aware of that. But the, the book has been banned, at least in terms of discussion. It's hard to ban a book before it's even been published. As for the broader legacy, I increasingly am starting to think of land reform as the original sin of the communist revolution in the countryside, where so many things went bad at that very moment 
and had profound implications as the decades went on. So in my book, clearly the, the biggest one is the arrival of class labels. And Xi Jongshun, Xi Jinping's father, was very strong about this. He said, you cannot pass those on from one generation to the next, but that's exactly what they did. But all sorts of things happened in land reform that had just major results on rural society as the years went by. Recently, I was reading a book by Mobile Gao, who uh, works on uh, rural Jiangxi, and he writes about his home village. And this was just another great example. So in his village, the, the land reform work team came and they were completely hoodwinked by a local who was feuding with another peasant, not a landlord, and tricked the work team into having this guy labeled a landlord and completely ruined his life, not just for a couple of weeks, but for decades and ruined the lives of his entire family. So I want to go back to this idea of the original sin. It's like that original moment where the party came and there was this great hope. And that's the, the, the thing that I always want to emphasize is that the party came to your village and yes, on one hand, they're there to do certain violent things, but they are there because they want to make your lives better, that they want to improve things. But when things went wrong at that first moment, the, it just kept on snowballing and snowballing. And we still are at this point where we, we, we can't go back and, and really reassess the entirety of land reform because it has all of these implications for all these things that happened later. So the legacy of land reform, it's complicated, it's murky, it's ongoing. Here I will add that I'm very happy that I wrote the what I consider the first book that looks at land reform as an organic whole, that it considers land reform on both sides of the 1949 divide and looks at it from economic and cultural and political perspectives. But since the book has come out, there have been other books that have come out. There's more work in progress. And I am very happy as a, where I am in my career to, to leave behind land reform, to leave it to the next generation. And I just encourage future scholars to not give up and to keep on exploring land reform as long as we get closer and closer to the truth. Oh,